Hey, welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Brian Wenzel. So this is a new podcast that I just created called Our Weird World. It's going to be a podcast all about weird and unusual history, conspiracy theories, alien conspiracies, murder mysteries, you name it, anything like that. I've always enjoyed stuff like that um, and just thought this would be fun to do some do a podcast about it. So hopefully you all enjoy this. If you would like to reach out to me, I'm on Facebook. You can go to Facebook and search Our Weird World. You can also email me at ourweirdworldpodcast at gmail.com. I will repeat those again at the end of the podcast if you want to reach out, have a question, comment, uh, suggestion, or just want to stop in and uh, say hi. Yeah, reach out to me. I'd love to hear from you. So this first episode that I want to do is actually related to a holiday that's coming up here in the United States. So it's the end of August as I record this. And the first weekend in September, we celebrate Labor Day here. So this is a holiday celebrating the working class citizens. And it originally came about uh, partly because of the Industrial Revolution and people striking, labor unions striking, wanting eight-hour workdays because there were a lot of places where people were working 12 or more hours, sometimes every single day for very poor pay and very very poor working conditions, excuse me. So, President Grover Cleveland, uh, after a bill was signed by Congress, he signed that into law, creating the federal holiday Labor Day, which we that we now know, which is the first weekend, first Monday, of in September. So, but what I want to talk about is actually some of the darker history behind it that led us to that holiday. So, there were a lot of strikes before the this this particular incident I'm going to talk about but they were all peaceful they they hadn't been violent they there hadn't been any deaths yet um we'll get into that here in a little bit so again at this point all the strikes that happened all the all the the protests and rallies were nonviolent but there's a, one in particular I want to talk about that really helped push the United States towards this holiday of Labor Day that we celebrate. Some of you might know exactly what I'm talking about if you're familiar with the history of this. Some might not be. Uh, Before researching this, I wasn't. I was ignorant of this particular incident. I had a vague understanding of Labor Day and what that holiday was and what it meant to us and represented, you know, for us, for uh, United States citizens. But this kind of darker side to it, I, I was unfamiliar with this history. You know, it's one of those things that in you know going to school here they pretty much just gloss over they talk about labor day what the holiday is and just a really vague they don't get into the the nitty-gritty of it just the here's what the holiday is it celebrates our working-class citizens and and you know things that came about from back in the industrial revolution and so forth so i thought this would be pretty neat to dive into a little bit more so this is about what is referred to as the Haymarket Affair. Sometimes it's called the Haymarket Massacre or Riot or Square Riot or, or Haymarket Incident. If you search for those, any of those, you're going to be able to find it. There's a lot of uh, sources out there uh, that pertain to it, and you can find a lot of good information about it. So basically what this was, it was a rally that turned deadly. 
There was a bombing that took place at a demonstration on May 4th, 1886 in the Haymarket Square in Chicago, Illinois. Now, Chicago was a pretty major epicenter for a lot of these labor union rallies at the time. There were other rallies in other cities around the country, but Chicago was kind of the, uh, they were the main, kind of the heart of it. That's where a lot of this was coming from. So a lot of these peaceful rallies were in support of workers striking for an eight-hour workday versus the long-hour workdays they'd had before. So on May 4th, 1886, at Haymarket Square in Chicago, there was a peaceful rally that began in support of workers striking for an eight-hour workday. The day after the events at the McCormick Harvesting Machine Company, during which there was one person killed and many others injured. So at this point, an unknown person threw a dynamite bomb at the police as they, the police acted to disperse the meeting. The bomb blast and ensuing gunfire from the police resulted in the deaths of seven police officers and at least four civilians. Uh, some of the, the resources I found, it, it, they had conflicting numbers, but most of them said at least four civilians and lots of other wounds because of the, the blast and the gunfire. Later, in some of the uh, publicized legal proceedings that followed, eight anarchists were convicted of this conspiracy. Uh, the evidence that one of the defendants that one of the defendants may have built the bomb, but none of those on trial had thrown it, and only two of the eight were at the Haymarket at the time. So the evidence was it, you know, there was evidence to it, but it, again, because all of the kind of chaos that was going on with the riot, it you know, the evidence wasn't very strong. Seven of the people that were convicted were sentenced to death and won a term of 15 years in prison. The governor at the time, Illinois Governor Richard Oglesby, actually commuted two of the sentences to terms of life in prison, two of the uh, death sentences. Uh, another one actually committed suicide while in jail before his execution, and the other four were actually hanged November 11th, 1887. Later, in 1893, the new governor of Illinois, John Peter Altgelt, I hope I pronounced that right, pardoned the remaining de defendants, and he actually criticized the initial trial. The Haymarket Affair, it's generally considered significant as the, uh, the origin of the International Workers' Day, which is held on May 1st. Um, this is kind of like a Labor Day also, but for other countries outside of the U.S. Um, a lot of countries outside the U.S. celebrate this day on May 1st. Haymarket Affair was also the climax of, of social unrest among the working class Americans, uh, all, kind of also known as the Great Upheaval. And this is according to historian William J. Adelman. Here's a quotation from him. No single event has influenced the history of labor in Illinois, the United States, and even the world more than the Chicago Haymarket Affair. It began with a rally on May 4th, 1886, but the consequences are still being felt today. Although the rally is included in American history textbooks, very few present the event accurately or point out its significance. So that was a direct quote from historian William J. Adelman. And I definitely agree with, uh, like I said before, with it, its presentation in American history textbooks. I don't remember actually reading about this in American history. Maybe we did. Maybe it was in there. Maybe it was just so long ago that I don't recall it. But, you know, again, our, our American history teaches about Labor Day. But, 
you know, I didn't know about this particular incident. The site of the incident was designated a Chicago landmark in 1992, actually, and a sculpture was dedicated there in 2004. In addition to that, the Haymarket Martyrs Monument was designed, excuse me, was designated a National Historic Landmark in 1997 at the defendant's burial site in Forest Park there in Chicago. So that's pretty cool. So let's let's look more back into the a little bit further history, just a kind of a vague overview of again how we got to this incident. After the Civil War in the United States, there was huge expansion of industrial production in the United States. You know, an industrial re- revolution was all over the world, but especially in the United States. And Chicago was a major industrial center at the time with tens of thousands of German, Bohemian immigrants, excuse me, Bohemian immigrants that were employed and were making roughly a dollar and a half, so a dollar fifty a day, not an hour, a day. I tried to find a uh, conversion website to see what that would equate to today. I couldn't find any that went far enough back, so I, I wasn't entirely sure, and I didn't want to just take a, a wild stab it in the dark and guess at it. If you know what that conversion is now in 2022, you know, let me know. So late 1800s, 1880s, you know, $1.50 a day. If you know what that converts to in today's money, you know, reach out to you, let me know. Again, I, I wasn't able to find a, any sort of conversion website or anything that went that far back. So also at the time, other than making roughly $1.50 a day, American workers were typically averaging about 60 hours or more a week, usually six days a week, sometimes seven days, depending on where you worked. So Chicago became a center for many attempts to organize labor's demands for better working conditions. Uh, in, employers responded with anti-union measures such as firings and 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 backlisting union members, locking out workers, uh, recruiting strike breakers. They even employed spies, thugs, and even uh, private security forces to divide the workers. So business interests were supported by mainstream newspapers and were opposed by the labor and immigrant press. So during the economic slowdown uh, between 1882 and 1886, socialist and anarchist organizations started becoming more active. Membership of the Knights of Labor. So this was a American labor federation that was active in the the 19th century, especially in the 1880s during this time. They were also uh, active in Canada and even had chapters in Great Britain and Australia. So they were all over the place. They rejected socialism and radicalism, but they did support the idea of the eight-hour workday. And they grew from about 70,000 members in 1884 to 10 times that, over 700,000 members in just two years. In two years. So by 1886, they had 10 times over 700,000 members. That's incredible. So back to Chicago, the anarchist movement and several thousand, mostly immigrants, uh, workers, centered around the uh, German language newspaper, forgive me if I mispronounce this. I I know a little bit of German. I'm not great, but I'm going to Try to pronounce this the best I can. So this German language newspaper, Arbeiter Zeitung, Arbeiter Zeitung, which translated in English to Workers' Newspaper, and it was edited by August Spies. So his last name is is spelt like Spies, S P I E S. But I do know that in German language, if if there's an I E like that, it's it's pronounced. So his name would be pronounced Spies. I hope that I got that right. 
If you know better, let me know. So the newspaper was called Arbeiter Zeitung, or the workers' newspaper, and was edited by August Spies. And August Spies, he was a German-American. He was an upholsterer. He was a radical labor activist and the editor of this newspaper. Various other anarchists operated a militant revolutionary force with an armed section that was equipped with explosives. This group revolutionarily, excuse me, I can't speak, I'm saying the wrong word there. Its revolutionary strategy center was around the belief that successful operations against the police and the seizure of major industrial centers would result in massive public support by workers. They started revolution, they wanted to destroy capitalism and establish a socialist economy. Again, looking back into the historical events of the time, we want to go to, now we're going to go to October of 1884. There was a convention held by the Federation of Organized Trades and Labor Unions. This later became what you would know now as the AFL or the American Federation of Labor. So they unanimously set May 1st, 1886 as the date by which the eight hour workday would become standard. So they said, hey, by May 1st, 1886, we need to have this eight-hour workday standard. So that gave them about a year and a half. October 1884 is when they held this convention and said, hey, by May 1st, 1886, we need to have this eight-hour workday. So about a year and a half. As this date of May 1st, 1886 approached, U.S. labor unions prepared for general strikes in support of this. So on May, uh, excuse me, on May 1st, Saturday, May 1st, 1886, Thousands of workers who went on strike and attended rallies that were held throughout the country, was all over the United States. They actually sang an anthem, a song called Eight Hour. And here's the lyrics. Uh, I'm not, I, I tried to find the song. I couldn't find the actual song, but I was able to find the lyrics. So the lyrics are as, quote, eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, eight hours for what we will. Pretty simple lyrics. Again, I wasn't able to find the actual song. Probably make up some ideas that would sound pretty clever, sound pretty good with it. It's estimated the number of striking workers across the U.S. ranged from 300,000 to half a million. It, again, I saw conflicting numbers, but that was an estimate across the U.S. In New York City, the number of demonstrators was estimated to be around 10,000. In Detroit, around 11,000. In Milwaukee, it was estimated to be around 10,000. Now in Chicago, in again, this was kind of the heart of everything. This was the movement center. It was estimated that there was between 30 and 40,000 workers that had gone on strike. Now that's just workers that had gone on strike. It's also estimated that there were probably twice as many people out on the streets participating, just citizens that were in agreement with this and were participating along with, with the various demonstrations and, and marches. So for example, the Chicago Lumber, lumber Yard, yeah, estimated that there were 10,000 uh, men there that were marching. So again, roughly 30 to 40,000 employees on strike with possibly twice as many citizens. Through participants in these events, it added up to about 80,000. It is disputed, the numbers of this, but that, roughly about that. August Spies, the, again, the editor of the, the German language newspaper, he was speaking at the rally outside of the plant on May 3rd, and he advised striking workers to, and I quote, hold together to stand by their union or they would not succeed. So the general strike to this point was nonviolent. It was marching and striking and hadn't become violent yet. Later, when the end of the workday came about, people that were working started to confront the striking, the strike, excuse me, the strike breakers uh, began to confront. Despite 
Spees calling for crowds to remain calm and to not fight. Unfortunately, the police fired into the crowd. Two of the McCormick workers were killed, although some newspapers said it was six. I've seen three and six, so it's, excuse me, I've seen two and six. It was stated that two. Some newspapers said six. I saw different conflicting numbers. The original quote of two is what I saw the most, so we'll go with that. If you have more information on that, let me know. Spees, who would later testify, he said, and I quote, this was during his uh, his testimony, I was very indignant. I knew from experience of the past that this butchering of people was done for the express purpose of defeating the eight-hour movement. So outraged by the act of the police violence, uh, local anarchists quickly printed and distributed flyers calling for a rally the following day at the Haymarket Square, where we'll get to here in a minute, which is what this is all leading up to. And Haymarket Square was a bustling commercial center near at the corner of uh, Randolph Street and Plain Street. So the flyer was printed in both German and English, and it stated that the police had murdered the strikers on behalf of business interests and urged workers to seek justice. The first batch of flyers contained the words, Working men, arm arm yourselves, and appear in full force. When Spies, he saw this line, he didn't like that, and he said... It would not speak to the rally. He, excuse me, he would not speak to the rally unless these words were removed from the flyer. He, he didn't like the idea of that because it's basically working men arm yourselves and selves and appear in full force. Basically, it's just you're 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 asking for violence there, and I, I think that's probably what why he wanted to remove was like, hey, I want to remain peaceful. I don't want this to get violent like it did yesterday. All but a few hundred of the flyers were destroyed. Some, you know, that had already been out. And there were new flyers that were printed without that line added to it. And more than 20,000 copies of the revised flyer without those lines were printed. Um, I'll try to post a picture of this on Facebook. So I'm going to read it. The top line says, Attention working men. Great mass meeting tonight at 7.30 o'clock. Haymarket, Randolph Street, De Plains, and Halstead. Good speakers will be present to denounce the latest atrocious act of the police, the shooting of our fellow... Workmen, yesterday afternoon, working men, arm yourselves and appear in full force, the executive committee. So that was the original version with that working men, arm yourselves line. The version that had revised just had that last line removed. Everything else is the same. The rally at Haymarket Square began peacefully under light rain on the evening of May 4th. So it was raining, but people still came out. August Spies, he was there. Albert Parsons... So he was an American socialist and later anarchist newspaper editor. Uh, He was there. And Reverend Samuel Fielden. Now he was an English-born American Methodist pastor. He was a socialist, anarchist, and a labor activist. And he was actually one of the later convicted men of the uh, Haymarket bombing, the one that I, I talked earlier in the beginning. We'll talk about it a little bit more later. So these three men actually spoke to the crowd and the crowd was estimated to be anywhere between 600 and 3,000 people. Uh, again, I've seen conflicting numbers, but most say between 600 and 3,000. And they were standing on an open wagon adjacent to the square on De Plain Street. And of course, there were a large number of on-duty police officers in the area watching and you know didn't want it to get out of hand. And there's actually a good quote that actually comes from a historian. Uh, his name is Paul Avrich or Avrich. Again, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. If you know, 
the pronunciation of his name, let me know. Paul Averick. I'm going I'm to say Paul Averick. So he was a historian that he did a lot of history writing on that anarchist movement from the 19th into the 20th century, uh, especially in Russia and in the United States. And he taught at Queens College City University in New York uh, his entire career from 1961 to when he retired in 1999. And he quotes Spies as saying this. So this is a quote from Spies that Paul quotes from him. So here's the quote. There seems to prevail the opinion in some quarters that this meeting has been called for the purpose of inaugurating a riot. Hence, these warlike preparations on the part of so-called law and order. However, let me tell you at the beginning that this meeting has not been called for any such purpose. The object of this meeting is to explain the general situation of the eight-hour movement and to throw light upon various incidents in connection with it. So that was a quote that Paul Averick, the historian, quotes Spies as having said during this this, uh, Haymarket Square speech. So following Spies' speech, the crowd was then addressed by Parsons. After he spoke, the crowd was so calm, uh, the mayor of Chicago, Carter Harrison Sr., had actually stopped by to watch after walking home early. Parsons spoke for almost an hour before he stepped down to let the last speaker, who was the pastor, Reverend Samuel Fielden, speak. According to some sources, Fielden, uh, some say he delivered a speech of 10 minutes, some sources say it was 20 minutes, but the rain was starting to pick up at this time, so that's partly why he didn't speak for so long. Uh, a New York Times article, which was dated May 4th and had the headline, Rioting and Bloodshed in the Streets of Chicago, 12 Policemen Dead or Dying. They reported that he spoke for 20 minutes, alleging that his words grew, and I quote, wilder and more violent as he proceeded. Another New York Times article with the headline, Anarchy's Red Hand, and which was dated May 6th, opens with, and I quote, the villainous villainous teachings of the anarchists bore bloody fruit in Chicago tonight, and before daylight, at least a dozen stalwart men will have laid down their lives as a tribute to the doctrine of Herr Johann Most. And so Herr Johann Most, he was a German-American socialist and anarchist politician and newspaper editor as well. It refers to the strikers as a mob. So this is again the the New York Times article referred to the strikers as a mob and used quotation marks around the term working men. So it seemed like they were really trying to point it at obviously at the the people that are striking and everything was their fault. Around 10.30 p.m. as filled in the reverend he was finishing a speech police started arriving a lot more of them and marching information towards the speaker's wagon and they ordered the rally to disperse now reverend fielden insisted that the meeting was peaceful but police inspector john bonville proclaimed i command you addressing the speaker in the name of the law to desist and you addressing the crowd to disperse so he basically wanted everybody, he wanted them to leave, whether it was peaceful or not at that point. He, he just, they just wanted the crowd to be done. I think a part of it was the, you know, obviously with the incident that had happened before, they didn't want it to get violent. So they just wanted everybody to get to go home, to get out of there. But at this time, a homemade bomb with what they call brittle metal casing was filled with dynamite and ignited by a fuse. So the brittle metal casing was basically just, it's kind of like a hand grenade. It, it's made out of soft metal to encase it but can explode from the inside out and sending shrapnel and debris from it all over the place so you can think of it almost like a homemade grenade that had to be lit with a fuse was thrown 
in the path of the advancing police. According to the research that I found, it says that the fuse had briefly sputtered and then the bomb exploded, obviously killing some of the police officers, uh, in particular killing policeman Matthias J. Deegan. Uh, he actually sustained shell wounds in the abdomen and leg from flying uh, fragments from this homemade bomb. And then it severely wounded many other uh, of the police officers. Multiple witnesses maintain that immediately after the bomb blast, there was an exchange of gunshots between police and demonstrators. It's not really clear who shot first. Some of the uh, research I found said the police fired first. Some say that the crowd fired first. But either way, there was gunfire between both sides. So again, historian Paul Averick, he maintains that, and I quote, nearly all sources agree that it was the police who opened fire. Now, I, I, I could see this with what was going on. I'm sure there were, you know, a lot of nerves. And then with what had happened before, and, and you kind of think about the time that it wasn't the same as, as now, you know, so it would have been a lot easier for them to open fire. Anyways, I'm speculating. That's me speculating. Anyways, Paul Everick maintains nearly all sources agree that the police opened fire first. Again, a lot of sources do do claim that, that they fired first. Some claim the, the crowd had fired first. Either way, it seems most to be on the side saying that police fired first. And they said, a lot of people said that the police reloaded and continued to fire more. At this time, it was, it was thought that uh, at least four were killed and as many as 70 wounded. And this all happened in really fast. And so in less than five minutes, the square was empty, except for obviously the casualties. According to New York Times, demonstrators began firing at police who then returned fire. This was a, a New York Times article. Again, the newspapers and media outlets at the time seemed like they were against the labor unions and the strikers and were more in favor of the police. So again, you've got different sources saying different things. But this was a direct quote from a New York Times article. Demonstrators began firing at the police who then returned fire. So in this report on the incident, Inspector Bonfield wrote that he, and I quote, gave the order to cease firing fearing that some of our men in the darkness might fire into each other. An anonymous police official told the Chicago Tribune, quote, a very large number of the police were wounded by each other's revolvers. So it was 10.30 at night, and they're in the square, and you can imagine the time, it probably was very dark, and they're shooting, and yeah, it probably was very chaotic, so they were worried that they were going to shoot each other. So this is still part of that same quote. It was every man for himself and while some got two or three squares away the rest emptied their revolvers mainly into each other so it just sounds like a lot of chaos ensued in total so seven policemen and at least four workers were killed historian Averick maintains that most of the police deaths were from their own gunfire basically friendly fire now another historian timothy Meser cruz i hope i pronounced that right he's a american historian who specialized in the american labor history he argues that although it's impossible to rule out lethal friendly fire, several policemen were probably shot by armed protesters, which I could agree with some of what what we saw earlier. Uh, witnesses stated police shot. Some witnesses stated that crowd shot and it was back and forth. So I, I could agree with that. You know, I'm, I'm sure there were plenty of people that were armed as well in the crowd. Again, they were, they were angry with what had happened before, what had gone on before. You had the flyers that came out saying to the working men to arm themselves. Obviously, only a few hundred were sent out and then they were revised. There was a lot of tension and I'm sure there were some people that wanted blood. I'm sure firing happened between both sides. So another policeman who actually 
died two years after the incident from complications related to his injuries were received on that day. He was a policeman that fired, died later, excuse me, two years later. So this actually remains the single most deadly incident of officers being killed in the line of duty in the history of Chicago Police Department. That's wild to think about um, going back to when that was the deadliest in Chicago Police Department. So about 60 policemen were wounded in the incident. They were carried along with some other wounded people into a nearby police station for medical treatment. Police Captain Michael Shack later wrote that the number of wounded workers was largely in excess of that on the side of the police. So obviously more police were, were injured. The Chicago Herald described a scene of wild carnage and estimated at least 50 dead or wounded civilians lay in the streets. It's unclear how many civilians were actually wounded since many were afraid to seek medical attention, obviously fearing being arrested because of everything that was going on. They went and found aid wherever they could. Kind of hearsay and it's just based on eyewitness testimony. And, and you think what's going on, you're, whoever saw it at Chicago Herald and s stated this, you know, they might've been scared and overestimated. But anyways, that's what they said in that particular uh, newspaper. Later on afterwards, there was a very harsh anti-union, uh, I guess you could say clampdown, following this incident. Employers wanted to regain control of their workers and traditional work days were restored to 10 or more hours a day. But at this point, you know, all this violence, obviously nothing came of it. Moving along forward to, towards the Labor Day. So there was massive outpouring of community and business support for the police and many thousands of dollars were actually donated to funds for their medical care and to assist their efforts. So okay, they're, you know, assisting the local police, but it's unfortunate what happened, but it didn't. We, they didn't move forward. It almost seemed like they were moving backwards. But again, I think all the, the violence and everything obviously didn't help with that. The labor and immigrant community, uh, particularly Germans and Bohemians, came under suspicion. Police raids were carried out on homes and offices uh, of suspected anarchists. Dozens of these suspects many only remotely related to this uh, Haymarket affair were arrested. Casting legal requirements such as search warrants aside, Chicago police squads subjected the labor activists of Chicago to an eight-week shakedown. They were just ransacking meeting halls and, and businesses, just no legal, you know, all, like I said, no warrants, just set aside there, just going after them. You know, they were going after the speakers there at the rally and the newspaper Arbeiter Zeitung. So there was a small group of anarchists that were discovered to have been engaged in making bombs on the same day as the incident, including round ones like the one used at the Haymarket Square incident. Newspaper reports uh, came out declaring that anarchist agitators were to blame for the riot, a view adopted by an alarmed public. Later, various press reports and illustrations of this incident became more elaborate became national and international news, you know, all over, everybody had learned about it. Press and other elements of society, there was an agreement that suppression of anarchist agitation was necessary for this. And union organizations such as that one, the, the Knights of Labor and craft unions were quick to disassoci disassociate themselves from the anarchist movement. They, they didn't want to be connected to that saying, no, we're, we're not the ones that caused this. And of course, the police are going after everybody. They don't, they don't want to be mixed up in this and have the police coming after them. The violent tactics that the police were using, they didn't, they didn't want that upon themselves. But a lot of workers believe that men of the Pickerton Agency, so this was a private security guard 
and detective agency in the U.S. that was founded back in the 1850s. Maybe I'll do an episode about them. That's kind of a neat other subject. I don't want to get too deep into them. So they believe that men of the Pickerton Agency were responsible because of the agency's tactic of secretly infiltrating labor groups and its sometimes violent methods, strike-breaking, basically. So they believe that their tactics that they were using were from them. So basically we're working with the police, but to make it look like it was the police. So there were investigations later, obviously, after this with the legal proceedings. The police had assumed that anarchists had thrown the bomb as part of a planned conspiracy. Um, whether that's true or not, we'll see. We'll get into that. But the police had to prove it. So on May 5th, they raided the offices of the Arbeiter Zeitung newspaper, arresting the editor, August Spies, also his brother, who later was not charged. So they also uh, arrested uh, editorial assistant Michael Schwab and Adolf Fischer, who was a typesetter. They searched the premises and resulted in the discovery of the revenge poster and other evidence uh, considered incriminating by the prosecution. I'm just going to see if I have a picture of the revenge poster. So it's this pamphlet that kind of like the other one, it was printed in English and in German. And on top it has big bold letters says revenge with exclamation point after it. Working men to arms with three exclamation points after it. I'm not gonna read the whole thing. It's pretty long, but I'll just, I'll just read a little bit of the beginning. Your masters sent out their bloodhounds, the police. They killed six of your brothers at McCormick's this afternoon. They killed the poor wretches because they, like, they, like you, had the courage to disobey the supreme will of your bosses. They killed them because they dared ask for the shortening of the hours of toil. And it continues along very similar to that. It was kind of hard to read the picture I have. It's kind of grainy uh, picture of this old. And then it repeats it in German as well. So that was the re revenge poster that they found. Obviously, that doesn't look good. And then two days later, on May 7th, they actually searched the premise, the, the Chicago police searched the premises of Louis Ling, who is a German-born American anarchist as well, um, where they actually found bombs and bomb-making materials. So not looking good for him. Ling's landlord, William Seliger, or Seliger? Again, apologies if I mispronounced that. Uh, he was also arrested, but he did cooperate with the police, and he did identify Ling as a bomb maker, and the landlord, William, was not charged. But an associate of Spies, Bathazar Rau, or Rau, I'm not, R-A-U, I'm not sure how you pronounce that. Uh, he was suspected as the bomber, and was traced to Omaha and actually brought back to Chicago uh, for this investigation. After he was interrogated, Rao, Rao Rowe, uh, again, I'm not sure how you pronounce that name, he actually did offer to cooperate with the police. And he alleged that the defendants had experimented with making dynamite bombs and accused them of having published what he said was a code word, and I quote, R-O-H-E, I'm, I'm not going to pronounce that, Ru, Ru, it, it translates to peace. Um, in the Arbeiter Zeitung newspaper, basically as a call call to arms um, at the Hay Market Square. So he was basically pointing directly at the same. Yep, it was them. They did it. The defendants, Rudolf Schnabelt. Oh my gosh, I'm so I apologize. Schnabelt, S C H N A U B E L T. Schnabelt, Schnabelt. Uh, the police police's lead suspect as the bomb thrower. He was arrested twice early and released. Uh, but by May 14th, 
when it became apparent that he actually played a role in this event, he actually fled the country. Uh, William Seliger, Seliger, the, the landlord, he actually, who had actually turned state's evidence and testified for the prosecution, he was, again, he was not charged. Later, June 4th, 1886, eight other suspects were indicted by the grand jury and actually stood trial uh, for being accessories to the murder of, of Deegan, the police officer who uh, later died. So of these eight, uh, two had actually been present when the bomb exploded, Spees and Fielden, um, and had spoken at the peaceful rally and were stepping down from the speaker's wagon in compliance with the police orders at the time, you know, to d- disperse, but just before the bomb went off. So they were actually the two that they were, two of the eight that were convicted and obviously were present. There were two others that also had been present at the beginning of the rally, but actually left and were later at a place called Zepfsal, Z-E-P-F, Zepf, I believe is how you pronounce it. Uh, this was a, a known anarchist's rendezvous at, at, in the area. So they had left the rally and were said to have been there at this hall at the time of the explosion. So obviously they couldn't have thrown it if they were there. But these two, they were um, typesetters there at the Arbeiter Zeitung newspaper. Uh, excuse me, I misread that. The typesetters, Adolf Fischer and uh, Albert Parsons, who had also spoken at the rally, um, they also had gone to the, the, the meeting place, Zepps Hall. So Parsons, who believed that the evidence against them was pretty weak, yeah, I, I can agree, subsequently volunteered to turn himself in. Uh, in solidarity with the accused. A third man, Spies' assistant editor, Michael Schwab, who was also the brother-in-law of Schnabelt, I, I believe is how you pronounce it, the, the lead lead suspect. He was arrested as he had been speaking at another rally at the time of the bombing. It couldn't have been him, so he was actually later pardoned. So not directly tied to the rally, but still arrested for their militant radicalism were George Engel, he was at home playing cards on that day, and he was a labor union activist in the area as well. And then also Louis Ling, who was obviously the bomb maker, um, but denounced by his associate, Seliger, the landlord. So another defendant who had not been present that day was Oscar Nieb. He was an American-born German descendant who was associated with the Arbeiter Zeitung newspaper and had actually attempted to revive it uh, in the aftermath of this riot. Of the eight defendants, five of them, Spies, Fischer, Engel, Ling, and Schwab, uh, the German-born immigrants, and a sixth, Nieb, who was U.S.-born, but of German descent. The remaining two, Parsons and Fielden, uh, born in the U.S. and England, respectively, were British heritage. So there was later a trial. So it was uh, called the trial Illinois versus August Spies, at all began on June 21st, 1886 and went until August 11th, 1886. The trial was actually conducted uh, obviously in with extreme prejudice by both the public and media towards the defendants. You know, it's very biased, very one-sided. Uh, it was presided over by Judge Joseph Gary. Joseph Gary was a local judge. He was born in New York and then worked later worked as a carpenter in St. Louis, but then became a judge. So Judge Gary, uh, he actually displayed open hostility to the defendants, so not looking good for them. And he consistently ruled for the prosecution and failed to maintain decorum during the trial, so it wasn't looking very good for, excuse me, the defendants. 
So a motion to try the defendants separately was denied. Uh, they they wanted to do them all together. Uh, the defense the excuse me the defense counsel included Sigmund or Zygmunt, you know German name uh, Zeisler, German Jewish U.S. attorney, but born uh, who was born in Austria, and also William Perkins Black, who was another lawyer and actually a veteran of the Civil War. The selection of jury was very difficult and actually lasted three weeks to get a jury. Uh, nearly 1,000 people were actually called for the jury. All union members and anyone who declared that despite their prejudices, they would acquit if the evidence supported it, uh, refusing to dismiss, dismiss for prejudice. So eventually, challenges of the defense were exhausted. So frustrated by the hundreds of jurors who were being dismissed, a bailiff was actually appointed who selected jurors rather than calling them at random. So the bailiff proved prejudices himself and selected jurors who seemed likely to convict based on their social position attitudes towards the defendant. Again, just not looking good for the defendants at all. So the prosecution led by Julius Grinnell had argued that since the defendants had not actively discouraged the person who had thrown the bomb, they were therefore equally responsible as conspirators. Okay, I'm pretty prejudiced and biased. I'll try to leave my personal opinions out of it, but I just, I just want to give you the facts that I found. So the jury heard the testimony of 118 people, including 54 members of the Chicago Police Department, and the defendants filled in Schwab, Spees, and Parsons. Albert Parsons' brother claimed there was evidence leaking, linking the Pinkertons to the bomb. This reflected a widespread belief amongst the strikers. So police investigators under Captain Michael Shack had a lead fragment removed from a policeman's wounds. Uh, they had it chemically analyzed. They reported that the lead used in the casing matched the casings of bombs found in Ling's home, the guy that they had found all the, the bombs and bomb-making equipment. A metal nut and fragment of the casing taken from the wound also roughly matched bombs made by Ling. So not looking very good for him. So Shaq concluded on the basis of, of interviews that the anarchists had been experimenting for years with dynamite and other explosives, refining the design of their bombs and eventually using it for that, that the Haymarket incident. At the last minute of the trial, when it was discovered that instructions for manslaughter had not been included in the submitted instructions, the jury was called back and the instructions were given. The verdict came out, so the jury returned a guilty verdict for all eight defendants, not too surprising the, the way everything was going. But before, before being sentenced, Neeb told the court that Shaq's officers were among the city's worst gangs, ransacking houses and stealing money and watches. You know, I'm sure back then a lot of that did happen, unfortunately, but I digress. Shaq laughed at Neeb in retorting, and I quote, You need not laugh about it, Captain Shaq. You are one of them. You are an anarchist as you understand it. You are all anarchists in this sense of the word, I must say. Judge Gary sentenced seven of the defendants to death by hanging and Neeb to 15 years in prison. The sentencing obviously provoked outrage amongst the labor unions and workers, workers' movements and their supporters, resulting in protests around the globe, not just 
in, in Chicago or the U.S., but around the globe. Uh, actually elevating the descendants to the status of martyrs now, yeah, because of it, um, especially abroad in, in various uh, labor unions uh, around the world. So portrayals of the anarchists as bloodthirsty foreign fanatics in the press, along with the 1889 publication of Captain Shack's sensational account, Anarchy and Anarchism, on the other hand, inspired widespread public fear and revulsion against the strikers and general anti-amigrant feeling just polarizing public opinion. So later in an article dated May 4th, entitled Anarchy's Red Hand, that was the one from the New York Times I'd mentioned earlier, described the incident as the, quote, bloody fruit of, quote, the villainous teachings of the anarchists. The Chicago Times actually described the defendants as, quote, arc counselors of riot, pillage, incendiarism, and murder. Other reports describe them as, quote, bloody brutes, red ruffians, dynamark, dynamarkists, dynamarkists, okay, yeah. Bloody monsters, cowards, cutthroats, thieves, you, you name it, uh, uh, assassins, what, you know, all kinds of various names like that. So one journalist, uh, George Frederick Parsons, he actually wrote a piece for the Atlantic Monthly uh, in which he identified the fears of middle-class Americans concerning labor radicalisms excuse me, labor radicalism, and asserted that the workers had only themselves to blame for their troubles. Edward Aveling, who was a prominent English biology instructor and uh, spokes, spokesman for Darwinian evolution, atheism, and socialism, he actually remarked, quote, if these men are ultimately hanged, it will be the Chicago Tribune that has done it. Shack, who again was the lead investigator, he was actually dismissed from the police force for allegedly having fabricated evidence in the case, but was later reinstated in 1892. He apparently fabricated evidence, was let go because of it, but hey, you know, we need a good investigator, so come on back, Shaq. So later, the case was appealed in 1887 to the Supreme Court of Illinois, uh, and then to the United States Supreme Court, where the defendants were represented by John Randolph Tucker, who was an American lawyer, author, and politician from Virginia. Roger Atkinson Pryor, he was a Virginia newspaper editor, politician. Uh, general Benjamin F. Butler, who was an American general, excuse me, American general of the Union Army, a politician, and then later a lawyer and businessman, as well as William P. Black, who was also a lawyer, and uh, mentioned him earlier, who was also an American Civil War veteran. And the petition for, this is a Latin word, I'm probably going to mis mispronounce it, certiorari, uh, was denied. This is a court process to seek judicial review of a decision of a lower court or government agency. So they petitioned for this, but it was denied. Now, later, after the appeals had been exhausted, the governor at the time, Illinois Governor Richard James Oglesby, commuted Fieldens and Schwab sentences to life in prison on November 10th, 1887. They were two, they were two of that have obviously been uh, committed, uh, sentenced to death. But on the eve of his scheduled execution, Ling, the bomb maker, maker he was actually the one that committed suicide in his cell. Um, he had actually done it with a smuggled blasting cap, which he reportedly held in his mouth like a cigar. And according to findings of his body that said the bass blast blew off half of his face and he survived in agony for six hours but later died because of the injuries that's unfortunate for him so you know he was going to be executed the next day and, and had smuggled this cap in and, and committed suicide with it 
But unfortunately, the next day, November 11th, 1887, four of the defendants, Engel, Fisher, Parsons, and Spees, were taken to the gallows in white robes and hoods. They actually sang the, what is called the Mar... Mar um, forgive me if I mispronounce this, Marseillaise? Mar, 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 from Marseilles, France. It was a song written in 1792 by Claude Joseph Roguet de Lille's? Lisa? Forgive me if I'm pronouncing any of those names. It was a song written in, in Strasbourg after the declaration of war by France against Austria and was originally titled, I'm going to mess this up, I know I am, Chant de Guerre pour l'armée du Rhin. I, I couldn't find it. I'm sure I could translate it, do you know, translation, but anyways, they were singing the song, which was an anthem of the International Revolution Movement. So family members, including Lucy Parsons, who was uh, married to the newspaper editor, Albert Parsons, she is tempted to see them for the last time. She was actually arrested and searched for bombs, but of course none were found. According to some witnesses, in the moments before their hanging, Spies shouted, quote, The time will come when our silence will be more powerful than the voices you strangle today. Then, the voices you strangle today. Excuse me, I said when instead of then. Uh, they were given uh, last words. Engel and Fisher had called out, Hoorah for anarchism. And Parsons, who actually requested to speak, but he was cut off uh, when the signal was given to open the trap door for the, the hanging, obviously. But the witnesses reported that the condemned men did not die immediately when they dropped, but strangled to death slowly, which can happen. You know, you look at historical hangings, you know, you, some people die right away because their necks get snapped. Some just dangle there and, and choke to death, basically strangled to death. And of course, some some witnesses say it left some of the uh, spectators visibly shaken. I mean, you can imagine seeing all these men being hung, whether you agreed with it or not. It's, you know, it's, that'd be ugh, a bit of a harsh sight to see. Despite the convictions and this conspiracy, no actual bomber was ever brought to trial that who ever threw the bomb. They, they never actually were able to convict or know who actually had thrown the bomb. Here's a quote, and no lawyerly explanation could ever make a conspiracy trial without the main perpetrator seem completely legitimate. Uh, historians such as James Joel and Timothy Meser Cruz, whom we mentioned earlier, uh, they state the evidence points to Rudolf Schnabelt, brother-in-law of Schwab, as the likely, likely perpetrator. But again, the evidence isn't clear who actually did it, and nobody was actually convicted for throwing that bomb. Uh, so among some of these supporters of the labor movement in the, in the U.S. and abroad, uh, the tri trial was widely believed to have been unfair. I, yeah, I mean, you look at some of that evidence and it definitely seemed like it was very biased and unfair. Uh, the novelist William Dean Howells, uh, celebrated attorney Clarence Darrow, poet and playwright Oscar Wilde, playwright George Bernard Shaw, and even poet William Morris strongly condemned the trial. Uh, later, on June 26, 1893, Illinois Governor John Peter Altgelt, the progressive governor of Illinois at the time, his, himself a German immigrant, uh, signed pardons for Fielden, Nieb, and Schwab. I think him being a German-born immigrant and seeing you know, the poor evidence and how it was biased one-sided, obviously felt it necessary to pardon those three. So I think that's good. Um, and he called them victims of, quote, hysteria, packed juries and a biased judge yeah looking back it, that that sounds about right um, and he also noted that the state quote 
has never discovered who it was that threw the bomb which killed the policeman and the evidence does not show any connection whatsoever between the defendants and the men who threw it. Uh, he also faulted the city of Chicago for failing to hold Pinkerton guards responsible for repeated use of lethal force against the striking workers. The governor, his actions concerning labor were used to defeat his re-election later. But soon after the trial, anarchist Dyer Lum, another American anarchist, labor activist, and poet, wrote a history of the trial critical of the prosecution, very, very critical of it. Later in 1888, George McLean and in 1889, police captain Michael Shack actually wrote accounts from the opposite perspective. Uh, awaiting sentencing, sentencing, each of the defendants wrote their own autobiographies as well, edited and actually published by Philip Foner uh, in, later in, in 1969. The later activist Lucy Parsons published a biography of her condemned husband, Albert Parsons, Fifty years after the event, Henry David wrote a history which preceded another scholarly treatment by Paul Everick in 1984 and a, quote, social history of the era, era by Bruce C. Nelson in 1988. Later in 2006, labor historian James Green wrote a popular history about it as well. So there's, there's a lot of stuff out there you can find that look back into the history of, of this event and everything. You know, it, it, was, a, it was a big event riot bloody riot and bias trial that happened so there are a lot of historical writings about it uh, another gentleman christopher thale writes in the encyclopedia of chicago that lacking credible evidence regarding the bombing the prosecution focused on the writings and speeches of the defendants he further notes that the conspiracy charge was legally unprecedented the judge was partisan and all the jurors admitted prejudice against the defendants that's definitely what it seemed like you know, it was very unfair, very biased towards them. But then, again, this started leading in towards where we are now. So I want to talk a bit more getting into moving up forward. There's, there's a lot of history that goes along with it. So historian Nathan Fine points out that trade union act activities continued to show signs of growth and vital vitality, excuse me, culminating later in 1886 with the establish establishment of the Labor Party of Chicago. Nathan Fines observes, quote, the fact is that despite police repression, newspaper incitement to hysteria, and organization of the processing classes which followed the throwing of the bomb on May 4th, the, Ch the Chicago wage earners only united their forces and stiffened their resistance. The conservative and radical central bodies, there were two each of the trade unions and two also of the Knights of Labor, the socialists and the anarchists, the single taxers, and the reformers, the native-born and the foreign-born Germans, Bohemians, and Scandinavians all got together for the first time on the political field in the summer following the Haymarket Affair. The Knights of Labor doubled its membership, reaching 40,000 members in the fall of 1886. On Labor Day, the number of Chicago workers in parade led the country. Now, Labor Day already exists at this point, but it wasn't a federal holiday. It was celebrated by various states around the country, but it wasn't actually a federal holiday yet. On the first anniversary of the event, May, May 4th, 1887, the New York Tribune actually published an interview with Senator Leland Stanford in which he addressed the consensus that, quote, the conflict between capital and labor is intensifying and articulated the vision advocated by the Knights of Labor for an industrial system of worker-owned cooperatives, another among the strategies pursued to advance the conditions of laborers. 
more pressure continued for the establishment of the eight-hour workday at conventions held by the AFL in 1888. The union actually decided to campaign for the shorter workday again. So in May 1st, 1890, it was agreed upon as the date of which workers would strike for the eight-hour workday. Back to 1889, the AFL president Samuel Gompers wrote to the first Congress of the Second International, which was meeting in Paris at the time. He informed the world socialists of the AFL's plan and proposed an international fight for a universal eight-hour workday. And this is what led to the International Labor Day on May 1st. I'm going to advance a little bit forward in time. More just history. I want to go back to these suspected bombers. While admitting that none of the defendants were directly involved in the bombing, the prosecution made the argument that Lee had built a bomb. Obviously, seeing the evidence, raiding his house, they found evidence of that with with the bomb-making pieces he had. Two prosecution witnesses actually tried to imply that the bomb thrower was held by Spees, Fisher, and Swab. The defendants claimed that they had no knowledge of the of the bomber at all. Several activists, including Robert Reitzel, later hinted they knew who the bomber was. Writers and other commenters have speculated about many possible suspects. So later in 1889, a commemorative 9-foot or 2.7-meter bronze statue of a Chicago policeman by sculptor Johannes Gellert was actually erected in the middle of uh, Haymarket Square with private funds raised by uh, the Union League Club of Chicago. Uh, the statue was unveiled on May 30th, 1889 by Frank Deegan, the son of Officer Matthias Deegan, who had died. On May 4th, 1927, the 41st anniversary of the Haymarket Affair, a streetcar jumped its tracks and crashed into the monument. The motorman said he was sick of seeing that policeman with his arm raised. The city restored the statue in 1928 and moved it to Union Park. Uh, later during the 1950s, construction of the Kennedy Expressway erased about half of the old rundown Market Square. And in 1956, the statue was moved to a special platform built for it overlooking the freeway near its original location. The Haymarket statue was vandalized with black paint May 4, 1968 the 82nd anniversary of the uh, incident following a confrontation between police and demonstrators at a, as a protest against the Vietnam War. October 6, 1969, shortly before the Days of Rage protest, the statue was destroyed when a bomb was placed between its legs. Weathermen took credit for the, the blast which broke nearly 100 windows in the neighborhood and scattered pieces of the statue onto the Kennedy Expressway below. Uh, the weathermen uh, also referred to as also called the Weatherman Underground, it was a radical left-wing militant organization that was active in in 1969. Uh, they were credited for that bombing. Later, the statue was rebuilt again and unveiled on May 4th, 1970, but to be blown up yet again by the Weatherman on October 6th, 1970. And yet again, the statue was rebuilt, and Mayor Richard Daly posted a 24-hour police guard at the statue. This guard, at the time, cost sixty over sixty-seven thousand dollars per year. In 1972, it was moved to the lobby of the Central Police Headquarters, and in 1976, the enclosed courtyard of the Police uh, Chicago Police Academy. For another three decades, the statue's empty pedestal stood on its platform in the rundown remains of the Haymarket Square, where it was known as an anarchist landmark. On June 1st, 2007, the statue was rededicated at Chicago Police Headquarters with a new pedestal unveiled by Geraldine Dukeka. 
not, I'm not sure you pronounce that, D-O-C-E-K-A, Officer Matthias Deegan's great-granddaughter. So, and in 1992, going back, the side of the speaker's wagon was marked by a bronze plaque set into the sidewalk reading, quote, A decade of strife between labor and industry culminated here in a confrontation that resulted in the tragic death of both workers and policemen. On May 4, 1886, spectators at a labor rally had gathered around the mouth of Crane's Alley. A contingent of police approached onto Plain Street were met by a bomb thrown from just south of the alley. The resultant trial of eight activists gained worldwide attention of the labor movement and initiated the tradition of May Day labor rallies in many cities. Designated March 25th, 1992, Mayor Richard M. Daly. And that's essentially where we move forward, and that pushed the president, again, from the bill that was signed by Congress to create what we now have Labor Day. Obviously, this refers to May Day labor rallies, which is May 1st, which is an international Labor Day that is celebrated. But again, in September, we celebrate Labor Day on the first Monday, first full weekend, first Monday in September, which this year, 2022, will be September 5th. That was just a lot of the history of the Haymarket incident, riot, whatever you want to refer to it as, um, just how violent it got, how quickly it erupted. You know, obviously there were tensions between the labor union rally individuals, the police, and it just quickly spun out of control. The trial, obviously, as you can see from the historical, was very biased, very one-sided. Unfortunately, those people were hung. You know, some of the evidence did point towards them, but it was still pretty controversial. It, it's very unfortunate what happened. It's a, it's a very dark part of our U.S. history that I was ignorant of it. You know, I didn't really understand it. I know we have Labor Day, and, and it's, it's a celebration of the working class citizens here in the U.S., but there is this dark side to it that led us to that holiday. If you are celebrating Labor Day uh, in September here in the U.S. Have fun, enjoy it, whatever you're doing. If you're out barbecuing, you know, doing fireworks, if you go camping, which a lot of people like to do, enjoy it, have fun. But just remember, it. it there was bloodshed, unfortunately, that, that led to it. Not, not directly the actual holiday, but it helped lead up to get to where we are to en enjoy this holiday. I feel blessed to live in a country where we can celebrate holidays like that and, and our, our given a three-day weekend like that. Obviously, not everybody is given a three-day weekend, depending where they work. You know, I, I know some industries, fast food, you know, retail, etc., might not have the three-day weekend. But again, I, I like I said, I feel blessed having it uh, where I work and being able to celebrate that holiday. I enjoy it. Enjoy the holiday. Happy Labor Day. Whatever you're doing, just have fun with your family, whatever you do, and hope it's all a, a nice, enjoyable holiday. If you enjoyed this podcast, let me know. Find it wherever you find your podcasts. If you want to reach out to me, again, you can find me on Facebook. It's Our Weird World. You can also email me at ourweirdworldpodcast at gmail.com. If you want to send a comment, question, just say hi, whatever, stop in. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.